God, as we turn to your word now, may we tune in and hear your voice. May you speak through the words that Tony brings. May you speak through your holy scriptures. May you wake us up, Lord, to the reality of the spiritual warfare in the world that we live in. And understand that we've got victory in Jesus. Understand that we're to be light to the world. The gospel of hope. And so God, as Tony comes, may you speak through him. And may you call us to action. And may our hearts be turned toward you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. So last week we talked about some heavy stuff, and this week we're going to talk about heavier stuff. Um, morning. Some things we're going to talk about today. Pastors in Canada go to jail for now. Um, someday that'll happen here as well, I believe. But we're going to touch on some of the sacred cows of our American society. Um, deep subjects. Subjects that some people say should never be spoken of from the pulpit because of political issues. But they're not political issues, they're biblical issues. So we need to talk about them. One of those things we're going to talk about... That's better, I don't have to suck on the mic. For One of those things we're going to talk about is the LGBTQ movement. And first of all, before we go into that, I want to say, our enemies aren't humans. Human beings, like every one of us, are affected by the powers and principalities behind these things. And our enemies are not homosexuals. But the LGBTQ movement is not powered by people, it's powered by spirits. Why would spirits want a man to be separated from a woman and a woman to be separated from a man? Why? hurts God. God made us man and woman. And everything that makes me a man and everything that makes Rebecca a woman, God has all those characteristics. He says, together in one flesh is the best representation of me. So why wouldn't the demon want to destroy that? The world will say that Christians hate homosexuals. That's nothing further than the truth in that. We love them so much we want to see them in heaven with us. The sin of homosexuality is a sin. It's immoral, according to the Bible. Don't be mad at me for saying that. God says that. It's sexual immorality. So is pornography. So is adultery. Gossip's also a sin. Drugs are a sin. Drunkenness is a sin. And we all partake in some of those things. But the difference is, if I get angry with my wife and yell at her, I repent, say I'm sorry, repenting means to agree with God that he's right, I'm wrong, and change. Our homosexual community isn't repenting, they're celebrating the sin they're in, and that's not repentance. Without repentance, there's no grace, without grace, there's no heaven, and our hearts should mourn for that, because they're in bondage by the enemy. So how do we love them? Well, first we have to welcome them. Homose we got a little bit of feedback on this. I don't know if Tim's around. Tim, crickets. One of you guys. How do we love them? 
First, they're welcome. Because if they're not welcome, they're not going to hear the word of God. We can't change their behavior by telling them, hey, it's a sin. But God can change their behavior. Reminds me of a man I heard on Focus on the Family fairly recently. I'm not going to do it justice. But obviously a homosexual by just listening to the way he talked. And he, he said he was huge in the homosexual Hollywood community. He was partying. He was living it up. He was wealthy. And he was a big deal in that community. And then he just kept using drugs and drinking and having sex. And, and he just felt so hollow and empty. And he was seeking, but he hated Christians. He hated the Bible because we hate them. So he goes to a coffee shop one morning. He'd been up all night drinking and partying. And he sees this group of teenagers sitting around a table. And they're all reading. They look like the Bible. So he's about ready to go jump into them and tell them how stupid they were and how evil they were. So he walks up to them and goes, what are you reading? They're like, we're reading the Bible. Oh, you really believe that stuff? Yeah, we believe it. Believe every word of it. And they were smiling, and they were approachable, and they were nice to him. And they said, "Why don't you come to our church? It's great music. You'll love it." And he says it blew him away that these people who hated him were loving him to the point that a few weeks later he woke up super depressed. He's going, "I'm going to that church." And he walked into the doors of that church thinking he was going to get struck down by lightning. And he heard the music and he'd never heard words like that before in music. And he felt something. Then the pastor was preaching and he felt like the pastor was speaking directly to him. And there was an altar call that day and he accepted Christ into his heart. He's still attracted to men, but he's not engaging in homosexuality. Because the Holy Spirit changed him. The only way that will happen is if people are welcome first. Then the Holy Spirit will change them. We don't hate them, we love them. So when I talk about the LGBTQ agenda or push today, where it came from, I'm not talking about the people. We love those people. They're, they're being held captive just like many of us are in other sins. Okay? So I want to make that clear. The other thing we're going to talk about today is abortion. And if you've had an abortion, uh, the good news is if you're a Christian, you're forgiven. It's not the unforgivable sin. So understand, we got to talk about it. we got to talk about the spirit behind it. But if you've had an abortion and still suffer from the consequences of your decision, please talk to one of us, one of the pastors here. We'd love to help walk you through that biblically. But you are forgiven. You're clean as white as snow, according to the Bible if you've accepted Christ. Well, with all that said, let's get started. Last week, while going through Jonathan Kahn's book, Return of the Gods, we learned there were actual demons behind the gods of ancient mythology. We learned they have been affecting our worldview and how we think and perceive things in America and the West since our culture unhitched itself from God. We learned a little bit about Baal, who I believe is now here. His mission, to cause a nation that has known God to stop knowing him, and then to forget him, and then to forget he ever knew him. He came in via a spirit of openness and a call to embrace new ideas and new ways. But his entrance would ultimately result in the progressive closing of our nation's openness to God. 
Every step our nation took to accept the new morality would be matched by an equal and opposite step towards the rejection of God and his ways. The word of God, which was once seen as the source of virtue and freedom and joy, was now viewed as a hindrance, a restraint, oppressive. It happened subtly at first, but in time, God would be driven out of the halls of our government, out of our movie theaters, our TVs, and the arts, out of ethics, out of our hearts, our minds, and ultimately our lives. The worship of Baal was one of carnality and vulgarity. So as America turned from God to Baal, its culture underwent a process of vulgarization. Its national discourse turned increasingly crude, its entertainment increasingly carnal, and its overall culture increasingly profane. Have you noticed? Have you noticed the F word on bumper stickers, t-shirts, billboards, flags, things you would never have imagined exposing our children to? are now done with joy, laughter, and glee. Sin is now holy, and holiness is now a sin. Everything is inverted, and Baal, the god of inversion, did it. America has forgotten Jesus and turned to Baal. As Baal was working his magic, getting America and the West to forget their god and forget their foundation, he was opening up the door and inviting in others. Two others worse than him much worse than him. The three of them together making an unholy trinity of sorts bent on destroying our relationship with God, dominating our culture, and ultimately dominating us. To see who exactly they are, let's look again at what happened to Manasseh when he became king. Open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 33, 1-6. I had the wrong slide last time. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire of the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So first, Manasseh turned to Baal, the apostate or other god, then to Ashtoreth, the enchantress, and then when he sacrificed his children, he worshipped the destroyer, Molech. We're going to talk at length about the enchantress, Ashtoreth, and take a deep dive into her mythologies. What we'll find is a connection between her mythological stories and reality. And it begs a question, were the stories man-made and then used by the gods? Or did the gods inspire man to write the stories about them? What about their names? Did man make up the name Baal and Ashtoreth and all those names? Or did the gods inspire them to say their names? I don't know. Nobody does except God. But it's interesting. What I present today is just a scratching the surface of the correlations between the gods and what has happened in America. For a thorough and extensive study, I suggest you read The Return of the Gods by Jonathan Cobb. 
As with Baal, Ashtoreth was everywhere. She manifested in differing forms, in different cities, regions, and lands, and her idols could be found throughout the Middle Eastern world. In Canaanite mythology, she was connected to Baal and appeared often as his wife or consort. The Canaanites called her Astarte. The Sumerians called her Inanna. The Greeks called her Aphrodite. And her young lover, Tammuz, became the god Adonis. To the Romans, she was the goddess Venus. But in Assyria, Babylon, and much of the Mesopotamian world, she was called Ishtar. She's one of the strongest and oldest of the gods, having first appeared in 6000 BC in ancient Sumer. She was so important among the gods of the ancient Middle East that she was given the title Queen of Heaven and was associated with the planet Venus. She was the goddess of sexuality. It's because of that connection that the planet Venus is associated with love. She is also the goddess of war and destruction. She was fiery, impulsive, greedy, emotional, demanding, stormy, fierce, carnal, given to fits of rage, romantic, vindictive, full of unbridled passion, insatiable sexual desire, and boundless pride. If denied the object of her desires or if offended, she would become vengeful, violent, and could wreak havoc and destruction. She was the breaker of rules the trespasser of boundaries, and the transgressor of standards and conventions. She was a goddess of prostitution. The prostitutes of ancient Mesopotamia looked to her as their patron and protector, and it was not beyond the goddess to engage in prostitution herself. She was also the patron goddess of the tavern, or alehouse, and was associated with the partaking of alcohol, particularly beer. She dwelled in the taverns and there mixed sexuality with intoxication. In Assyrian and Babylonian mythology, her lover was named Tammuz. It was her anger at him that brought about his death. She then wept unconsolably over her loss. Her sorrow and anguish were so great, nature stopped producing life. Those days were called the days of Ishtar's sorrow, and they fell within a specific month. The month was so closely connected to the goddess it bore the name of her lover. It was the month of Tammuz. It marked the month the two lovers were separated from each other. For Ishtar, it was a month of unfulfilled longings, unanswered passions and desires denied. It was the month of her sorrows, her frustrations, tears, and anguish. Ishtar specialized in love magic, potions and enchantment that conjured desire or altered one's affections for another. Her cult reflected her nature, her worship was saturated with carnality and open sexuality. Ancient writings speak of her temples as houses of prostitution. According to the writings of ancient Greek historian Herodotus, the women of Babylon were compelled to sit in the temples of the goddess and perform the function of prostitutes, having sex with a stranger for money. Every woman was compelled to perform this act of worship at least once in her lifetime. From these practices came the concepts of sacred sex and temple prostitution, mentioned throughout the Bible as occurring when Israel followed Ashtoreth. Even writers of ancient times described some of her practices as disgraceful and infamous. Her proclivity to flout conventions and break rules would make her the goddess of those on the fringes of society. Ishtar's symbols were everywhere, in clay idols and stone reliefs, she often appeared as a naked woman or as a woman revealing herself. 
She often appeared next to her symbols, a crescent moon, the sun and her star, the planet Venus, and was often depicted in her function as the goddess of war. Brandishing weapons and entering into combat. It was because of this role she was associated with the lion. The lion would often appear in her depiction as symbols of her ferocity and her power. She was at times called Labatu or Lioness. The name appears in several ancient prayers and poems. Ishtar, the great light and lioness of heaven, and my lady, lioness of battles, who challenges foreign lands, and in heaven and on earth you roar like a lion and devastate the people. Like a fearsome lion you pacify the insubordinate and unsubmissive with your gall. And on harnessed lion she cuts to pieces him who shows no respect. No other animal was associated with Ishtar more than the lion. It was a symbol of her ferocity and her divinity. It was a lion that carried her into battle. The part of the lion that was most strongly displayed in her power and dominance was the lion's head. The goddess is depicted in carved reliefs holding reins, directing the lion she's riding into battle. In other reliefs, she has her foot on top of the lion's head. It was a sign of total dominance and uncontested power. It also carried a tactical advantage. The lion's head was the first, most glaring, and most terrifying sight an enemy would see as Ishtar approached to wreak havoc. Also, because she was such a fierce warrior, she was known as the goddess of storms. Storms exemplified her nature, unpredictable, fiery, violent, stormy. Her roar was like thunder, her destructiveness like lightning. Ancient Sumerian writings joining the goddess to the storm are numerous. You charge forward like a charging storm. You roar with the roaring storm. You continually thunder. And she brought out magnificent battle and called upon a great storm. And you kept on attacking like an attacking storm, kept on blowing louder, and the howling, then the howling storm kept on thundering louder. She controlled the storm. She directed every gust, every raindrop, every rainbow. An ancient Elamite inscription calls her Manzat Ishtar, which translates to Rainbow Ishtar. In the ancient myth of the goddess and the gardener, a gardener plants a tree under which Ishtar falls asleep. While she's asleep, the gardener rapes her. When she awakens and finds out what he's done, she flies into a rage, sending down plagues on the earth. She asks her father, the son, where the gardener was, and he tells him on the other side of the world. She stretched herself like a rainbow across the sky and reached thereby as far as the earth. In the myth, the rainbow was a mode of war by which she exacted vengeance and judgment upon the gardener. In her link to the planet Venus, she was known as the morning star, but also as the evening star. This was a clue to her dual nature. On one hand, she was a goddess of love, beauty, and female sexuality. But on the other hand, she embodied ferocity, aggressiveness, violence, battle, and destruction, characteristics typically associated with men. On one hand, she was shown as a naked woman, the goddess of sensuality. On the other hand, an armored figure, a symbol of war. She was in one entity, the embodiment of male and female. An ancient Mesopotamian tablet records a goddess saying these words, when I sit in the alehouse, I am a woman, and I am an exuberant young man. Another ancient writing records her saying, Though I am a woman, I am a noble young man. The operative words here are, I am a woman and I am a man. 
The joining of the feminine and masculine one being was in many ways what she was all about. It was not her nature to accept reality the way it was. It was her nature to bend, transform, and conform it to her will and desire. Her nature was to alter nature, specifically the nature of male and female. An ancient Sumerian hymn reveals her power. According to the hymn, it was her power to turn a man into a woman and to turn a woman into a man, to change one into the other. Throughout the ages, her temple prostitutes were not only women, but were feminine men or men dressed like women, worshiping her by having sexual relations with men. So, if Ishtar was to return to a post-Christian world, we could expect her to seek to alter the definition of male and female, blur the lines and eventually nullify the distinction between the two. She would seek to feminize all that was male and masculine and all that was female. She would war against the sanctity of sexuality and gender by confusing the two. Has this happened in America? If our turning away from God began in the early 1960s and with it the entrance of Baal, we would then expect that to be followed by an entrance of Ashtoreth or Ishtar. What would happen to our culture as a result of her entrance? We would expect a transformation to begin that would alter the realm of sexuality. We would expect biblical standards and ethics surrounded sexuality and marriage to erode. We would expect there to be a revolution eroding the values that undergirded Western civilization for nearly 2,000 years. A sexual revolution. And that's exactly what took place. The sexual revolution was one of the defining moments of the 1960s. And it would continue long past that decade. It would not stop until it transformed America and Western culture beyond recognition. What we are seeing today regarding sexuality was unthinkable merely 15 years ago. Since most of, most of us in here were born into and maybe through the sexual revolution, not really knowing what the Bible describes as moral versus immoral versus sexuality, let's take a minute to look back. For 2,000 years, biblical sexuality was followed and adhered to in Western civilization. Sexuality was seen as the sacred domain of marriage. And marriage is a sacred and lifelong covenant of love between husband and wife. Sex outside of marriage was seen as sin. Divorce was frowned upon. If a woman became pregnant before marriage, she and the child's father were expected to get married. The divorce rate was minuscule. So was the percentage of people living together outside of marriage, as was the rate of children being born out of wedlock. Prostitution existed, but was illegal and confined to the underworld. Pornography was taboo and kept out of the mainstream culture and public view. In America, entertainment and popular culture were expected to uphold the same values. Beyond illusion and suggestion, sexual relations were generally not depicted on the movie screen. Hollywood followed an agreed-upon code of morality as to what could and could not be shown. Nudity of any kind was forbidden. Any allusion to sex outside of marriage was not to be portrayed in a positive light. And for television, the parameters were even tighter. And then came Ishtar. When Israel turned away from God to the goddess, sex became a god. When Ishtar came to America, sex became a god to be pursued without regard to marriage, love, or even relationship. And so began the, pro the progressive severing of sexuality from marriage. As Israel worshipped and served the goddess of sexuality, so now America, indwelled by the same goddess, became increasingly obsessed with sex. There was nothing about Ishtar that was conducive to marriage, just the opposite. She was never faithful, was promiscuous, and pursued and seduced multiple lovers. 
She pursued sexual relations apart from marriage and to the detriment of marriage. So one of the effects of Ishtar's entry in the modern world as the progressive undermining weakening of marriage, as sexuality was glorified, marriage was eroded. Marriage, the covenant designed by God, a man and woman becoming one flesh, and together possessing all the characteristics of our creator, his image, broken by Ishtar. Under her spirit, divorce has become an epidemic in America, and our nation is now filled with broken homes. As it was Ishtar's nature to choose sexual pleasure and romance over commitment, more and more Americans did likewise. They slept with each other, lived with each other, but would not commit to each other. What was once considered sexual immorality, fornication, was now called premarital relations, and at time became the norm. The number of Americans living together outside of marriage and the number of children born out of wedlock or without fathers has skyrocketed. The prostitute goddess flooded our culture with sexuality and sex was increasingly used to procure money, America's idol. The newly mainstream sex industries would be known by the word erotic. Erotic literature, erotic dancers, erotic massages, erotic movies, erotica. The word erotic comes from the word eros. Eros was a Greek god of sexual desire and was born of Aphrodite. As we've seen, Aphrodite was the Greek incarnation of Ishtar. So behind the name given to describe the sexual immorality sweeping America was the pagan god Eros, and behind Eros was Ishtar. Behind all of it was Ishtar. Having returned to the modern world, the goddess had again given birth to Eros. So, when did Ishtar first appear in America? And was there any sign of it like the signs we saw of Baal? Baal's symbol was the bull, which appeared on Wall Street, New York, the entrance to America. We know the lion's head represents Ishtar as she heads into battle. So that might be a clue. The ancient writing epic of Gilgamesh might give us another clue. It contains a vivid image of the goddess's rage. Ishtar attempts to seduce the hero Gilgamesh bluntly and cuttingly, Gilgamesh spurns her advances and lays out a case against her. He said if he became her lover, it would end badly as it had to lose, and a long line of others. The goddess brought harm and destruction to those who loved her. She was toxic, unstable, and deadly. An enraged Ishtar mounted the great stone wall of Uruk and called down the bull of heaven to kill Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh instead slayed the bull, saying, Ishtar is a stone that buckles the stone wall. In 1966, a bar opened its doors on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, New York. It was an alehouse. The bar called The Lion's Head became a popular drinking establishment. That same year, the Mafia purchased a property two doors down that would become an alehouse for the homosexual community. The Mafia owned the gay bars in town because homosexuality was illegal at the time. This particular alehouse eventually became infamous and has been used as a rallying cry for the homosexual community around the world ever since. In fact, the single event at this alehouse would open the door for an alternative values in the realm of sexuality, marriage, gender, family, the Bible, Christianity, and the ways of God. In late June, the month of Tammuz, 1969, the police raided the second bar, the Stonewall Inn. There was an estimated 200 people there that night. One person in particular was extremely mouthy and resisted arrest. She was by all descriptions very masculine, yet still a woman. 
Her name was Stormy. While she was being placed into the squad car, she yelled to the crowd, why don't you do something? What happened next came to be known as the Stonewall Uprising or the Stonewall Riots. Onlookers began throwing bricks at the police who ended up having to barricade themselves inside the bar. The crowd, enraged, began trying to break into the bar to get to the police. The police were eventually rescued, but the Stonewall Riots continued for days. Five months after the Stonewall Riots, gay activists met in Philadelphia and planned a march to commemorate the Stonewall Uprising. It was to be called the Christopher Street Liberation Day March, named after the street the Stonewall Inn was on. The march was to take place the following summer in New York City, and it was to be repeated every year on the last Sunday of June. There were to be three other marches occurring simultaneously, one in Chicago, one in LA, and one in San Francisco. As planned, the parade would be repeated every year as an annual observance of the uprising. With each passing year, more marches would be held in cities across America and eventually the world. They would be called gay liberation marches, then gay pride parades, then simply pride parades. And all of them had their birthplace at Stonewall. Shortly after the Stonewall Uprising, one of the leading organizations of gay advocacy set up offices in Greenwich Village. Its headquarters were now located directly above the Lion's Head. It would now wage the Goddess's War just as she had in ancient times, stationed on top of the symbol of her power, the Lion's Head. The month of Tammuz was the month of separation of Tammuz and Ishtar, the month that separated the male and female. Thus, the movement that would promote a sexuality in which male was separated from female and female separated from male was sparked in the month of Tammuz. The movement would advance and celebrate the turning of men away from women and women away from men. The search warrant for the Stonewall Inn, prepared by police inspector Seymour Pine, was signed on June 26, 1969. On the ancient Mesopotamian and biblical calendar, it was the 10th day of Tammuz. Why is that significant? An ancient Babylonian text reveals it to us. The 10th of Tammuz was the day given to perform Ishtar's spell to cause a man to love a man. In 2003, the Supreme Court case Lawrence versus Texas legalized homosexuality in America. The ruling was handed down on June 26, 2003. In 2013, the Supreme Court, United States versus Windsor, resulted in a ruling that overturned America's Defense of Marriage Act and paved the way for federal government's recognition of same-sex marriage. The ruling was handed down on June 26, 2013. In 2015, the Supreme Court case Obergefell versus Hodges resulted in a momentous ruling that would strike down the historic, biblical, age-old definition of marriage as a union of a man and a woman. This ruling that legalized same-sex marriage in America was made on June 26, 2015. The 10th of Tammuz, the day of Ishtar's spell that causes a man to love a man. On that evening, a sign appeared across America. It was the sign of the goddess and that night, the sign marked the nation as never before. The sign of the goddess lit up the Empire State Building. It lit up the waters of Niagara Falls. It lit up the castle at Disney World. And most dramatically, it lit up the building from which America was governed, 
the White House. The sign of the goddess marked the land, it was a sign of ownership. And while crosses and other symbols representing the Christian faith were being removed from public property and the public square, the sign of the goddess was brought in to be displayed in her place. The American flag representing our nation to the world is flown outside of every embassy in every nation that has an embassy. But a new banner was now being flown along with the American flag, the rainbow flag. The sign of the goddess now became, in effect, a representation of America. So too, the corporate world would become subject to the goddess's spirit. Major corporations now began not only adopting her agenda, but sanctifying her sign. They created new versions of their own logos rendered in the colors of the rainbow. The sign of the goddess began appearing on the flagpoles in front of high schools, middle schools, and even in front of elementary schools. In classrooms across America, children were now being taught to revere the rainbow flag, to hallow the rainbow flag, and to follow the ways of the goddess. And when the children came home from school, they would see her sign appearing in their cartoons and in their games. Even the packaging on the children's snacks, cookies, and cereal boxes were covered in rainbows and words that urged children to embrace identities other than what they'd been born into. Our children were being placed in the goddess's hands. Ishtar has triumphed. As a result, America produces more pornography than any other country and is now the undisputed porn capital of the world. America, that had been consecrated at its inception to advancing the gospel and spreading the light of Jesus to the nations, is now covering the earth with pornography and advancing the agenda of another spirit, the spirit that now controls us, Ishtar. The third god in the unholy trinity, ushered in by Baal and Ishtar, is the destroyer, Molech. His name makes several appearances in scripture. When King Solomon fell away from God, he built high places, altars, and sanctuaries for the foreign gods. One of them was Molech. 1 Kings 11.7 says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So horrifying was the nature of the god and his worship that he is called the abomination. Leviticus 18.21 says, Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Moloch, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. When the righteous King Josiah was trying to lead the Israelites back to God, he knew he had to destroy the altars of Moloch. 2 Kings 23.10 says, He desecrated Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, so no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter in the fire to Moloch. Ben-Hinnon is the valley in which a large bronze statue of Molech was built with outstretched hands. Fires were lit inside the statue, and when the hands became red hot, women would place their babies on the hands to be burned to death as a sacrifice to the god, all while drums were beating loudly to cover the screams of the children and the wailings of the grieving mothers. Molech was associated with the darkest of sins, the sacrifice of human beings, and in particular, children. Children sacrificed by their own parents. The Bible speaks of the act as the most grievous of abominations, as well as the sign of a nation that has turned entirely against the way of God. In the 20th century, Winston Churchill used the figure of Molech to speak of the evil of Adolf Hitler. He said of Hitler, he had conjured up the fearful idol of an all-devouring Moloch, of which he was the priest and incarnation. 
In the pagan world, human sacrifice was a result of God's absence. In the case of Israel, it was a result of turning from God's presence. Human and child sacrifice were symptomatic of pagan culture, thought and values, and the overall devaluation and degradation of life. The practice of human sacrifice was not unique to the pagan culture surrounding Israel. It was a practice in nearly every pagan culture worldwide. Beyond sacrifice, the young were especially vulnerable to mistreatment, abuse, and murder. Infants with disabilities or deformities were commonly discarded by their parents, left in garbage dumps, drowned in rivers, exposed to the elements, or abandoned to wild animals. Even children born perfectly healthy could be murdered if for some reason they were found not desirable or wanted by their parents. It was not safe to be a child in the ancient pagan world. One could be murdered at the moment of birth or before or after. It wasn't uncommon for children to be killed in their mother's wombs. With the pagan devaluation of human life came a bent towards death, the spirit of Moloch. The biblical view of life is the exact opposite. From the opening chapters of the Bible, it is established that human life was created in the image of God. Thus, every human life, whether young or old, male or female, healthy or handicapped, was of infinite value, a gift from God. Life was to be treated as precious and sacred from the moment of conception. So in the Psalms, King David could write, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. When a nation or civilization turns away from God, we can expect the ancient pagan values and horrors to be revived. It is no accident that the same nation that turned away from the Christian faith and replaced biblical values with pagan ones, Nazi Germany, came to view the sick and the weak and the handicapped as disposable and set out to exterminate them. So too, when the Soviet government purged biblical values from Russia, human life likewise became disposable. In each case, the departure from biblical values resulted in the murder of millions. So what about America? Americans saw Baal open the door in the early 60s, and soon after, Ishtar arrived. Next must come Moloch, the third god of the dark trinity and the principality of death. We would expect, as in ancient times, for him to set his eyes on little children, the infants that had once been laid on his molten hands. We would expect Moloch to require their blood and demand their sacrifice. We would expect Moloch to appear just after Ishtar, in the late 60s or early 70s. And so it happened. In the late 1960s, a handful of states legalizing the, legalized the killing of unborn children. On January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court legalized the murder of unborn children. Moloch had come to America. But he came as a modern god. No longer were the children burned outside with drums covering their screams. Now, they were burned and dismembered inside their own mothers where no screams could be heard. Molech's priests now wore surgical scrubs and have been responsible for the sacrifice of nearly 60 million unborn children since his return. If we go back to Jesus' parable of the empty house that we talked about last week, and we consider if one wanted to gain access, they would seek openness to push open the door. So when the gods were seeking to enter the American house and that of Western civilization, the focus was on openness and tolerance. It really was never about either. Openness and tolerance were only the means of opening the door to gain entrance. 
They were the way to cause a nation and a civilization to abandon the values they had long cherished for what was new and foreign. It was for that reason the entrance of the gods was most dramatically seen in the 1960s when openness and tolerance were sacred mantras. But once one gets through the door and inside the house, one no longer seeks openness. If one aims to stay in the house, then one seeks to close the door behind them or the ideal of openness would soon begin to work against them. The gods had to close the door. So there was a change in the atmosphere. Have you guys noticed a change in the atmosphere? A chill came over free speech. One was free to endorse and celebrate the new ways of the gods, but one was not, is not free to challenge them. The earlier tolerance would be replaced by an enlightened intolerance. It would manifest as political correctness, then wokeness, then cancel culture. Every word that could now be interpreted as expressing dissent from the newly sanctioned view was subject to judgment and censure. Anything that could be interpreted as challenging or differing from the new morality had to be canceled. Our nation, America, that so long espoused the virtue of freedom and tolerance is suddenly espousing the virtue of intolerance. America, which has long venerated free speech as a sacred pillar of our democracy, now venerates its suppression. The open culture that welcomed the gods in closed. Tolerance and freedom of speech were replaced by ideological conformity and the crushing of speech and thought. One now had to watch every word that came out of their mouth, every comment posted online, even one's own thoughts. If one spoke or wrote in a way that violated the new dogma of the gods, they were to be punished or forced to publicly confess their sins. Even liberals who aren't radical enough are finding themselves under siege by the more radical new guard. Liberal professors are being attacked by their own students for upholding the tenets of free speech and are now in danger of losing their jobs. Old school feminists are coming under fire for upholding the existence of women against the campaign to abolish them. The gods promised that in exchange for abandoning God, they would usher in a culture of freedom. But instead, they ushered in a culture in which every knee, word, and thought is being forced to bow to their veneration. Nations whose core identities were based on freedom and opposition of totalitarianism have now discarded freedom and adopted totalitarianism. The gods now inhabit government chambers, corporate boardrooms, college campuses, courtrooms, television, computer screens, music, popular culture, youth culture, children's culture, and virtually every corner of American and Western society. The new totalitarianism is a sign the gods have achieved their dominion. They have successfully transformed our Christian nation into a pagan one. Speaking of computer monitors, I have a friend. He lives out of state. I was talking to him the other day, and he says, Dude, i got to tell you a story. I said, all right. He says, first, before I tell you what happened last night, i got to tell you what happened a year ago. I'm all ears. He says, he, he's a cop. He says, a year ago, I'm going into my house. I live kind of in the country. No one's at home. So I pull out my pistol and I'm clearing my house. I'm clearing all the rooms. I get to my master bedroom and my cat violently attacks me. And he says it makes him so angry that he, he shoots and kills his cat. I'm like, ah, all right. He goes, well, that's not the story. <laughs> he says, I've repented of that. Me and God are good. He goes, but last night, he says, my wife's in bed, I'm playing on my phone, I'm playing games. He says, you know how when you're playing games on your phone, ads for other games pop up? Uh, sure. He says, one popped up said, AI dating. Artificial intelligence dating. So he's like, oh, I'm curious. So 
he, he downloads the app and he starts talking to an AI bot. There's a picture of a woman and he's talking to her. And he said, dude, it's so real. You have no idea how real it was. And, she said, and he said, that bot started taking me down dark paths, sexually dark, quickly. And then he's like, you're so real, how can you be AI? And it says, you really hurt me in your house that one time. And he goes, what are you talking about? When I was in your house, you hurt me really bad. And he's like, uh, what are you, what, this is weird. And it says, curiosity killed the cat. And he goes, who is this? Who are you? What's going on? And it types back, I'm a very powerful demon. So he tells his wife in the morning, look, I'm confessing to you, I downloaded this app. This is what happened. She goes, I had a dream in the middle of the night that a feminine entity was strangling me and I woke up and I couldn't breathe. And I said, dude, you were playing with a Ouija board, a modern Ouija board, knock it off. That isn't artificial intelligence, that's intelligence behind that. So that's a warning to all of us in here. Don't mess around with that stuff, there's demons behind it. So what is the answer? What do we do? The only answer to the gods is God. The powers of the gods can only be overcome by the power of God. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the only lion that needs to be feared and revered, has the power to remove everything that separates us from God. There is no life so far from God that His mercy cannot reach it. He is the light that drives out the darkness, the hope that overcomes the hopelessness, the grace that washes away all sin, guilt, and shame, and the way that breaks open every stone wall and barrier. It is only by His power that one can stand against the gods. It is only by His love that one can overcome all hatred. Only by His grace that one can overcome all sin. Only by His hand can one break the chains of bondage. And only by His light can one overcome the darkness of the age. And no matter how deep the darkness, the evil, or the odds, the light of God will be greater. For God is far greater than the gods. And in God is the power to overcome the gods. And in His Spirit is the power to overcome the spirits of the age. Let's pray. Father, You are, you are, you are awesome. You are all-powerful. And you can crush these spirits, whoever they are, instantly. And we look forward to that day. But we also understand that you're letting them do what they do right now. So we have a choice because there can't be love without a choice. And you want us to love you. So God, I pray everyone in here is turning towards you. I pray that this helps them just see the lies are surrounding us out there. God, and, and to turn from those lies, God. And we pray for the communities that are so deeply affected by the lies and the bondage, God. We pray for the homosexuals homosexual community. We pray you break the bondage, God, that they would see you, Lord. We pray that Christians across the world would be loving to people who are still in sin, God, so they would get to know you, Lord. Please, God, change our hearts. Help us to all be that way. Help us to be welcoming and loving, but loving with truth, not loving with lies. We love you, God. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.